Okay, Genesis 6, 9 through 7, 24. Noah and the flood. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground." will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. After the seven days of flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were open, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his, with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals 
going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, as, and as the waters increased, they lifted the, the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on the land perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, and all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that hath the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. The uh, passage this morning, obviously, is Noah and the flood. And as I studied this week, one thing for sure dawned on me, and that is, this is a really challenging passage to teach. And I feel inept, and so would you join me to pray that God would meet us here that we would hear his word, that his spirit would move, and that we would be a changed people. Let's pray. Father, your word is just that. It is your word. And those skeptics may throw their stones at this story. Your people believe that you are and that you are a water of those who seek you. Your word is the primary place we have to come to you and to seek you. May you teach us now that we would be a holy and separate people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I just said, skeptics... They, uh, the, they circle the flood story like buzzards circling a dead carcass. The flood story is an easy target for the non-believer. It feels, you know, at first reading, if we're intellectually honest with ourselves even, it feels sometimes like it's a, a tall tale or maybe even a fairy tale. And uh, it can be hard to believe that this man, Noah, built an ark over a 70-year period of his life. He gathered two animals, land animals, male and female, all of them entering onto the ark. And then out of nowhere, most believe it had never rained until this point. It rains for the first time, and not only does it rain, but it covers the entire earth. There's so many questions 
for the thinking person when it comes to this story. How many animals is that? Could the ark, you know, really hold all of those animals? How did he keep them all alive? And where did the excess go, if you know what I mean? Could Noah's ark really survive that kind of global flood? And then maybe the hardest question of all, why would God destroy all of those people? Where did the water come from? And then where did it go? All very good questions. For the believer, I think there's some answers that can bring comfort. And one of those answers is found, if you would look with me at Matthew 24, 37 through 39. Matthew 24, 37 through 39. And the reason I think this is comforting is because in Matthew 24, Jesus himself is saying the flood is a historical fact. And so, let me read 37 through 39 of chapter 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So if nothing else, Jesus is saying, this experience, this thing recorded over in Genesis is a historical fact. I am the Messiah, and if you believe who I am, you believe my words, and my words are saying, that really happened. So, Jesus is verifiably speaking that Noah's ark was not fiction, but indeed a fact. And then the apostle Peter, if you want to look at 2 Peter 2.5, 2 Peter 2.5 Peter says this in 2 Peter 2.5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with the seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So the apostle Peter is saying, this is a historical fact. If you believe the word of God, it is inescapable that this is indeed a historical fact. And then one more, just for emphasis, in Hebrews eleven seven, the author of Hebrews in eleven seven says it this way: By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so, God's word over in the New Testament is clearly saying, this is not a fictional story. This really happened. 
in space and in time, thousands of years ago, it's an historical event. Now, if you want to read at length about the historical and the scientific accounts as some of those questions that I was raising just a moment ago, this is a good book to do that. This is called The Genesis Account. I think there's a slide with the guy's name on it. Um, it's a hard one to pronounce. Um, he's from Australia. He's a PhD in chemistry. He's a scientist. This book is full of scientific answers for your questions about Noah and the flood and Genesis in the first 11 chapters. So I recommend it to you. But as the pastor, I don't think my primary job is to tell you all the scientific reasons this is true. So I'm going to leave that for you. Um, my job is to ask some basic questions to our text. What was the main idea God was communicating through the Noah flood story? What's the big idea here? What is God trying to say to us as his people? There is a cosmic backcloth to this story of Noah and the flood. In other words, a massive canvas. And God is writing this story or painting this story on that canvas. But on that canvas is so, so much more. There are at least these twin themes that are growing out of the story of Noah and the flood. And the twin themes that are growing out of the story that are so prevalent in the story are the sovereignty, the absolute control of God over all of history. That is one of the themes, the twin themes. But the second twin theme is God is desperately desiring an intimate relationship with his people. And so you see the sovereignty of God and his passion for an intimate relationship with his people growing out of this. And the way that you see this is if you look with me at Genesis 6, 18. Look at Genesis 6, 18. There's a key word in this text in 18. Here's how the text reads. But I will establish my what? Covenant. I will establish my covenant with you. It is God talking to Noah. And he says, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your son's wife's with you. And this idea of a covenant to really be a good Bible student and to understand the Bible and what is going on in the Bible, you must foundationally get the concept of God's covenant. It is a massive theme that runs through all 66 books. As God progressively reveals himself, he reveals more and more of what this covenant means. In short, you could say a covenant is a promise, but when it's God's covenant to men, it's more than that. And what I mean is a divine covenant given by God 
is one in which God binds himself by his own oath to his promise. So, for example, if I say to you, I say, I promise you I'll do this. Well, my promise is really only as good as my character, right? But when God makes a promise, a covenant, and he binds it to his character, well, then you can take it to the bank. Because God's promise will never, never, never come up short. And if you are his child and he has brought you into a relationship with him, he has made a covenant with you. You can't mess it up bad enough to lose your salvation. If indeed you are truly his and the Holy Spirit of God is indwelling in you, you could go out tonight if you were truly his, and I know you're going to think I'm crazy, and commit murder and you would still be his. Because it is by grace that we are saved. You know how I know that to be true? Do you know who committed murder in the Bible? And he's still his? Well, there's several of them. There's Moses. There's David. That's just to get started. They made horrible mistakes. But God's covenant with them stayed true because God wasn't dependent on their works, but on God's promise. That's actually the gospel. It is dependent on God's promise, not necessarily. But what happens to the believers when they really understand that promise, it begins to change us from the inside out. And now good works become just a part of our lives. And so look with me moving forward at Genesis 6, 6. Genesis 6.6 reads this way in the NIV, which is the ones you have in the Pew Bible. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. God is grieving because man has used his will to choose sin over him. And it says his heart is filled with pain. This is really, if you think about it, this is mind-blowing for me. This is the God of the universe who flung the stars in place, and he's suffering. He says he's suffering because of the distance between us and him, that it is breaking his heart that there would be distance between his creation and him. That is an intimate God. And that is why I say there are two massive themes running through the Noah story, the sovereignty of God and his desire for intimacy with his people. That's an intimate God that says his heart is filled with pain because of the separation. Our sin is causing God pain. One of the great implications of God's covenant, God's promise to his people and to Noah is this. When God makes a promise to us, he knows all future circumstances, unlike us. 
And he will never be called off guard. And so his promises stand according to his infinite wisdom. God's promises will always stand. He's not short on foreknowledge. Like I may make a promise and then see that you're not delivering your side and think, well, but I didn't know you weren't going to do that. If I didn't know you were going to do that, I wouldn't have promised it. God promises, and he already knows all of that. And he does it because of his infinite wisdom. Now, let's move to something even heavier, probably the greatest challenge in the text. I believe hands down, I learned this week, hands down is when you're in a horse, when horses are racing and the jockey knows he's going to win and he's about to cross the line and he's racing like this and he knows he's going to win. So he puts his hands down. He's already won. He just crosses the line with his hands down. So just a little tip. That's extra for you. No charge. I believe hands down the hardest thing about this passage is the monumental, you could say, incomprehensible loss of life that is being consumed by this flood. It's really, really challenging. Everyone on earth except for eight people wiped out. Wiped out. If we really consider this, it's the greatest single event of loss of life the world has ever known. I did some math this week. In World War I and World War II, out of all the soldiers of every country and all the civilians, 80 million deaths in those two wars. 80 million deaths. That's amazing. By the way, you know what we called the, uh, the, the, uh, the Boston Massacre? Do you all know that from your history classes in Boston? You know how many people died in the Boston Massacre? 50,000? 5,000? No, five people. We called it a massacre. This is much more of a massacre. Here's another number. Out of all of the deaths in service to the U.S., all the wars the United States have ever fought, three million total. The reason I share this with you is there's a ministry called Answers in Genesis. And they did the math, and I read the article this week, and they asked the question, how many people were on the earth at the time of the global flood of Noah? And they give a low end of what, it, what was the, the lowest number it could have been and what was perhaps the highest number it could have been. And here's the lowest estimate based on the article and all their math. The lowest estimate at the time of the flood, remember, every one of these people died that day. 750 million people. I said 80 million died in the First and Second World War out of all the countries, all the people. 80 million died. The low estimate 
for the flood was 750 million people at one time gone like that. Now, their high estimate was because of the lifespan. I mean, remember when you read your Bible, these people are living six, seven, eight, nine hundred years. I mean, how prolific could you be in your multiplication and reproduction in that amount of time? And they were practicing polygamy in a lot of cases. And so literally men could have had hundreds of children in eight or 900 years of living, easily. So you start doing the math, and they did in this article, and they come up with a number like three billion on the high end. 750 million or as much as 3 billion. Now, that 3 billion feels a little high to me, but 750 million is probably not wrong. Our text says that the thoughts of their heart was evil continually. That's important. The thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. You know what the Bible is saying, guys? That 750 million plus people entered into hell on that day. For me to skirt that is to bring a curse on us. The, the bottom line is as much as I hate the doctrine of hell, it's all in this Bible. And you've either got to accept it or reject the Bible. And a lot of people just reject the Bible. But that's what's happening in the great flood in our story. Eight people. How could God wipe out an entire world at one time. Doesn't it kind of make him seem like a monster? I mean, if you're just honest. To help us understand this passage, perhaps it might help us to ask a different type of question. And at first you may think, I don't understand your question and how it connects directly to what's happening in the story of Noah and the flood. But if God gives me grace here, I believe you can follow my train of thought. And when I get to the end of this, you're going to see something perhaps about God and about man that maybe you've never quite seen before in this way. That has been my prayer this week. So, here is my question to help us understand this unbelievable loss of life. Remind you, this is not going to make sense to you at first. Can we enjoy heaven knowing some of our loved ones are in hell. Now you say, how is that connected to Noah and the flood? I'm going to work this through 
And hopefully by the time I get through it, you'll see the connection. The question again is, how can we enjoy heaven when we know some of our loved ones are in hell? In November of 2013, the late R.C. Sproul told this story at a conference. R.C. Sproul has been a friend of mine, not personally. Uh, I don't even know that I ever met him. But I've read so many of his books and I've listened to so many of his sermons and talks that I feel like I know him. And uh, he said this story, he tells this story. His, his uh, mentor, I've also listened to umpteen million sermons on the history of the church by Dr. John Gerstner. Dr. John Gerstner was R.C. Sproul's mentor. And if you ever listen to Gerstner and then listen to Sproul, you'll, you'll hear it. He, Sproul models himself after Gerstner. It sounds just like the same person. But they're sitting in a class, R.C. Sproul is, with his professor, John Gerstner. There's only about eight students in the classroom. And one of the students pipes up and he says, Dr. Gerstner. And he asks our question that I'm asking today. How can we enjoy heaven when some of our loved ones will be in hell? Now, you don't know Gerstner probably. You've probably never even heard a talk or anything he's ever written. But I've, I have. Let me just say for you, he is incredibly blunt if he's nothing else. And so when this young man asked this question, this is Gerstner's response. Young man, you will be so sanctified in heaven that you will rejoice when you see your loved one in hell because it fulfills God's righteous judgment. Wow. Let me read that again. You will be so sanctified in heaven that you will rejoice when you see your loved one in hell because it fulfills God's righteous judgment. Now, to be fair, R.C. Sproul said he began to laugh out loud. <laughs> and he said there were two times that he really made Gerstner mad, and this was one of them. And Gerstner says, Sproul, what are you laughing at? And he says, that is absurd. It's unreasonable. Nobody talks like that. That's preposterous. But Sproul said after class and for the next few weeks and months, he spent hours wrestling with this comment from his mentor, John Gerstner. And he landed on three things that I think are going to help us understand Noah and the flood. The three things that he landed on first was this. We don't know who God is. We don't know who God is. And, and I'm not just talking about people that don't know the Lord. I'm talking about you and me and all the believers. We really don't know who he is. And what I mean by that is we do not understand holiness. We can't grasp how holy and set apart 
our God is. And so when we read in the Bible and we read the story where the men are moving the ark back and the ark begins to fall and Uzzah reaches and he grabs the ark to stop it from falling into the dirt, God strikes him dead for touching the ark because an unholy man has no business touching even a holy artifact of God. And we read the story and we go, ooh, poor Uzzah, that's hard. And then Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, everybody's selling their possessions and they're giving it to one another to move the kingdom forward. But those two, the husband and wife, they hold back a little for themselves. And God does what? He strikes them dead. And we go, oh, wow, that's harsh. Why would God do that? We don't know who God is. We don't understand his holiness. The second thing Sproul said as he meditated on what Dr. Gerstner had said is that he realized we don't know who we are. We not only don't know who God is, but we don't know who we are. And what he meant is there isn't one of us that conceptually really gets at a soul level how heinous our sin problem is and how pervasive it really is. We don't know God and we don't know ourselves because we don't see our sin for what it really is. When we see those stories, we think we, can, we kind of side with those people and we do it because we're like those people. We're still sin. There's still sin indwelling in us. It's our nature. We don't see it from a side of holiness. We see it as sinners, and so we feel for them. Our nature is one of sin. Even after becoming Christians, we are set on a sin default. It's what we do. It's how we see things. And everything that we see is skewed by this sin nature. Our hearts are not set to purity and holiness. And because of this, like Job, we question God's decisions. Y'all may know the story of Job. I'm sure you do. God let Satan test Job. And in all the testing for 38 chapters, Job is losing things and horrible things are happening. And basically, God has said to them, you're, you're only, to, to, uh, Satan has said to God, he only follows you because of what you give him, because you're kind to him, because you're good to him. And God says, I'll let you test him, but you can't take his soul. And through the testing, Job's saying, I wish I could speak to God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Job 40, 1 through 14. I want you to see when God finally shows up. Job 40, 1 through 14. Job is considered a righteous man, but this is how God responds to Job. 
He says, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? In other words, Job, you're contending with me. Are you going to correct me? Then he says, let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I've spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And listen what he says. Brace yourself like a man, Job. I will ask you questions and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like this? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash, Job, the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. What he's saying to Job is, Job, you darken my counsel by asking questions without knowledge. Where were you when I told the ocean it could go this far and that was it? Can you do that, Job? No, you can't. And Job realizes he's ignorant before a holy God. The third thing, we don't know God. We don't know ourselves. And the third thing is we don't know what, it, what glorification means. And when I say glorification, you might think we get glorified in heaven. And to some degree, that is true. But really what it is, is it's the consummation, the finishing of our sanctification. We're not made glorious like God. No, that's not it. But we are made holy like God. We're not lifted up like God, but we're made holy like God. And we have never for one moment of our existence in this world been without sin. And so being made glorified is altogether different. The one thing in heaven, you know, we all, as we age, we think, what's heaven going to be like? Well, there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. You know, I won't have to wear a hearing aid. Uh, all these things we go through. But you know what the, 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 the craziest thing in heaven is going to be? You're not going to have sin anymore. And because you won't have sin anymore, you're going to constantly be like, Wow, this, this is different. This is really, really different. And so, in Romans 8, 29 through 30, you don't have to turn there for time's sake, but this is how it reads. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We would be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers... And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. This is often called the golden chain of salvation. And the different links are he foreknew, he predestined, 
Um, he calls, he justifies, and then he glorifies. Some call this the order of salutis or the order of salvation. It's the way that God did it. But the goal, the end game, is this glorification. We don't understand glorification. And to illustrate that, I've got some guys that I'm going to bring up on the stage. If you would come forward, now is the time. Now that I have all my male models up here, this is what we're going to do. Unfortunately, Austin, because you came on this side, that is the only reason. (laughs) You're going to represent the 750 million people that died in the flood. You're over here. All the way to the the side. Because this is going to be a continuum. And then, because just the way y'all came up, you get to be Jesus. It's his finest hour. (laughs) Trust me. (laughs) You're all the way over here. And you, my friend, are the righteous Noah today. Here's the question. Based on what we know about the Scripture, God says that Noah, like Enoch, walked with him and that he survived the flood because he was righteous. So, if on this continuum you would place Noah, would you, would you bring him over here because God says he's righteous towards Jesus and put him kind of not too close because he is completely holy? Or would you put him somewhere else? I think the scriptures would take Noah <laughs> and they would put him just about like that. And even though Noah might have been the most righteous human being to ever walk the face of the earth, he was sanctified during his time as we are being sanctified during our time on earth. But still, I want you to notice the chasm between Noah and Jesus, a sanctified man that God would save and his family, and make a way through him for the seed to continue. But look at this great divide. Now, when Noah died, where do you think Noah was? Come with me, Noah. (laughs) Now, yes, because, not because of what Noah did, but because of what Jesus did for Noah. He is made righteous. He is now glorified. And now he can see things he could have never seen before. Y'all please take your seats. Thanks, guys. The point is this, that until we are glorified, follow me on this, until we are glorified, Our concerns are more about sinful human beings than they are toward the holiness and glory of God. That's why we could ask the question, 
Could I be happy in heaven if I knew I had loved ones in hell? You see, we will be able to rejoice. And this is the hard thing to get your head around. We will be able to rejoice in God's righteous judgment once we are free from our sin nature. We'll see it for what it really is. But until you are free from your sin nature, you're going to, and I'm going to, be more likely, period. I'm going to be more, I hate the doctrine of hell. And I hate it because I know I probably have loved ones there now. But when I'm glorified, I will have no more sin in me. I will be over here and I will see that God's righteous judgment is good. We don't know who God is. We don't know who we are. And we darn sure don't understand glorification. So in closing, let me say this. Look at Genesis 7, 16. This is the final word. In Genesis 7, 16... says this, and those that entered the ark, that is, male and female of all flesh, they went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Who shut Noah and his family into the ark to save them from the flood? God. God shuts us in and he carries out his covenant for his namesake, for his people. He will deliver us finally to a glorified state in heaven with him. God is saving a people for himself. The question for us is will you be his? Will you be his? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand more of you, more of us, and more of what it means to be glorified. Pray that our minds would be stretched to see you for who you truly are. I pray all this in Christ's name, amen.